Hello listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Gas Giants, the show on which nothing is artificial, not even the intelligence. We've got a special show for you tonight, and particularly for one of our regular listeners, Joe Green. You have given us some homework, mate. You really have. Do we know Do we know if Joe's a regular? He seems to be. He's listened to a lot of the shows. Oh, good. Oh, I, yeah. I knew that he listened to one of them, but anyway, yes. No, no, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's listened to a few. Mm. So Joe Green wrote in, uh, as indeed you all should on Substack, or you can actually also contribute uh, comments about the show on Spotify. We've now activated that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, watched, I watched a video about how to do that. So... <laughs> So, um, Joe Green wrote in, and he said, uh, guys, there's a book that's been calling your name for a while, and I would really love it if you could do this book. And so, tonight, we are going to be examining Mark Fisher's collection of writings, Ghosts of My Life. It's got some more subtitles than that, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Okay, yes. Writings on depression, hauntology, and lost futures. Yeah. But uh, but it's, it's the title I like. You know, the, the ghosts of my life grow wilder <laughs> than the wind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> dum, yeah. Uh, dum, dum. Well, let, uh, let, let me let me just state here that nobody has, uh, I don't think anybody alive has more admiration for Japan than I do, really? which is, of course, yeah, I, I love Japan, which mm. is where, um, where, of course, the title of this book comes from. Sort of indirectly, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Mark Fisher was um, born in 1968 so he's a little bit younger than tom and myself yeah like two years roughly uh oh three in my case yeah well three if you want to count it that way but i mean it, yeah. um the way he's the way i i got that was he said uh he was he said his age when when margaret thatcher was elected ah, or something like okay, that yeah yeah all right yeah yeah, that's as good a cut-off point as any, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. But um, sadly, uh, Mark uh, left the party early in 2017. Yes. But um, which which was, uh, you know, reading this book and reading other things that he's written, it was really a great loss. Yeah. Because he writes so well, and he explains often quite complicated philosophical concepts uh really clearly and concisely in a way that you think that anybody else who starts using talking about the same things and using jargon should really be invited to stop talking and this of course is uh, this book is um mainly devoted to what's known as hauntology mm. which uh I suppose we should start to define before we go any further with this. Well, I would actually rather defer that a little bit as to put okay. um, to to try and put some time frames uh, around this because uh, I think the whole thing sort of fits in more easily when we 
when we consider time frames. Um, so the earliest writings in this collection were around when? Not 2000? Let's see. Yeah, we, sh we should state that they're all, they're all writings from his blog, which he set up yeah, uh, called K-Punk. Yeah. It's a collection of writings on kind of similar subjects. Most, a lot of them have to do with, with music. Some of them have to do with films. Actually, they're not all from K-Punk, or some of them appeared somewhere else and then got put onto K-Punk, I think, in yeah. the case of some of the, the notes about films. And, but they were written over which years, is my question here. I don't have that in front of me. I think it says in the introduction chapter, there's a long introduction chapter to the book uh, where mm. he explains, uh, you know, how this stuff came to came together. Um, but it's mostly from the late 2000, you know, the um, 2005 yeah. to 2012 or thereabouts, I think. Yes. Yeah, that uh, that first introductory chapter is, is one of the best things in the book, didn't you think? I Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, to be, I was, I was going to have to disagree with you about the uh, about the quality of the writing. I think it's very varied. The introductory chapter, which is long, I thought was uh, w was great, and I thought, oh, good, we're onto something good here. And then I progressively got more and more disappointed as the book progressed. The uh, mm. the chapters that followed, only a few of them, I um, I'm, I'm pleased to have read, um, and and I I think kind of like add up to much. Um, this this was very perplexing to me. So somewhere about halfway through, I said, no, I'm going to have to stop this and, and try and get some more context. I went mm. away and read uh, Escape from the Vampire Castle, which came a little bit later, I think 2013, uh -huh. which is an article, his article basically denouncing the new fashion, uh, intensely arriving fashion for, for identity politics uh -huh. and what we now call cancel culture. Uh, which mm -hmm. goes with it, and the you know the, the you know the, the intensely moralistic approach to being a sort of leftist, or maybe just not a Republican or a conservative, oh, you know. Yeah. Um, and that that's an excellent piece. It's well organized. Uh, it's clear. It's largely lacking this. The sort of like continental philosophy style of, of language and, and it makes complete sense beginning to end and makes a thorough, you know, strong argument. And then you got the introductory chapter here. I thought, so a lot of people are also very impressed with his book called uh, Capitalist Realism. Uh, Capitalist Realism, yes. So I took a detour there and I uh, got the audiobook of that and I was appalled. I think it's I, I I don't I don't understand why people praise it at all. Makes no sense to me. It's got some good bits in there, but I mean I uh, now I've got now I got a much better handle on what's going on in 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 the rest of of this book. It's a uh, well maybe I do. Uh, I'm not sure if I can put it into words. I haven't practiced this yet, uh, oh. but it, it, it the. I mean, I, I, I can't make an awful lot of sense of capitalist realism. It, it seems to me to be a, a very personal sort of, you know, account of, of being, uh, of disillusionment, let's call it. 
uh, an account, a personal account of disillusionment and where are we now and being very unhappy about the status uh, of things uh -huh. and, uh, and, and making the, the cardinal error of assuming that everybody else sees it the way he sees it and making the, the, uh, the other error of ascribing the reason why everything's going wrong to our collective subjectivity, huh. which I find I just kind of have to reject, you know, that I didn't do it. Don't blame me. Hmm. So it's, it's a curious thing um, because some of the, some of the stuff in goes to my life, it principally the opening chapter. Huh. I thought the, the article about Jimmy Savile was good. Yes. And it's like the third last one or the second last one. See if I can pop it open here and look at the look at the Hansworth songs and the English riots, uh where he writes about oh, this. Yes. That was a film, I think. Presentation at the Tate Modern. Yes. So Yes, that's right. The director of the Black Audio Film Collective's Hansworth Songs. I, I enjoyed that one. A lot of the rest, I I was neither impressed with with the uh, with the argumentation actually, or, or nor actually the the language used. So we're going to have to hash this one out, aren't we? Oh well, well I I actually found that because uh, uh, quite a lot of this uh, book ended up talking about um, media with which I was unfamiliar. Uh -huh. Uh, be it either music or film, yes. and uh, I s found myself still uh, reading on, yeah. which is a which which is actually a, a mark of somebody who communicates well if they can interest you in something that you've got no idea about. Uh huh. You know, so that that that's a kind of litmus test right there. You know, I suppose. Yeah, I quite enjoyed the uh, the the chapter on. Uh, on on Zebalt, for instance. What's that about? Uh, uh, that's that's about kind of about psychogeology, but uh, psychogeography rather. But uh, but we we'll, we can get onto that later. But I I found quite a lot to interest me in in the uh, in the article on uh, Asher Philip Philip Jack Black to Com Ges position normal and modern music, none of which I've got. I would know if they chased me down down the street. Yeah, okay. Uh, the the article on John Fox I found quite interesting as well. And mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there are there are people who who often I actually look their uh, their content up online or maybe listen to some of the the records or, or saw a bit of the films. And uh, didn't find it all that interesting, but I found actually what they had to say in some of the interviews quite quite engaging. Yeah, yeah, that uh, it is a it's it's an interesting thing that we got here. Somebody who spent a lot of time um, sort of functioning as a music critic, hmm. and um, with a few exceptions, dealing with dealing uh, with music. I don't really understand why he's bothering with. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's uh, okay. It's a little bit weird. I, I, I mean, also, I'm I'm thrown off a bit because I've always, I've always been of the uh, of the opinion that a collection of blog posts does not a book make. But um, actually, here, obviously, I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay, he didn't sit down and 
um, begin to write a book on hauntology. He wrote a series of articles and then then collated them together into into a book, which got this this sort of headline of hauntology. Yes, it's easy to see why. Uh, if you were going to talk about hauntology, music would be uh, actually the platform that you would use. Okay. Explain but, why that's easy. Well, uh, to do that, I'd have to quote several passages from several books. But, um, or, but you know, particularly the, the uh, recorded music. Uh, but to start with, I'm going to kick this off with um, a bit from the book, which is probably really the 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 book that belongs together with this book, which is Simon Reynolds's Retromania. Yeah. Which is a, you know, a very, very interesting book, very uh, dense. Takes, there's a lot of reading in there, but it's, uh, but it, it is also entertaining. And he shares with, uh, with Mark Fisher, the ability to, to actually talk about quite difficult stuff in a, in a, a way that's, um, well, certainly understandable uh, and also occasionally entertaining so we've got a quick uh hold on I'll, I'll two little paragraphs here where um reynolds writes recording has always had a spectral undercurrent as audio technological scholar jonathan stern points out recording separated the human voice from the living body for the first time he sees phonographic time as the outgrowth of a 19th century culture that had recently invented canning and embalming phonographs held out the prospect of a kind of immortality the possibility that our voices would be listened to by uh, the not yet born and then later on uh, of the page he says like a spectre a recorded musician is at once present and absent there is even a specific type of ghost that the musical recording corresponds to what supernaturalists call the residual ghost, unlike the intelligent, responsive spook that can be communicated with and often has a specific message to deliver, the residual phantom is usually unaware of change in its surroundings and continues to play the same scene repeatedly. Edison boasted of how his invention could reproduce sound without the presence or consent of the original source, and after the lapse of any period of time, in other words, records are ghosts you can control. Indeed, Edison originally envisaged the phonograph primarily as a means of preserving the voices of loved ones after death. So, then tie that in to... Oh, God, where was this? Uh, okay. Now, we'd, we'd already talked uh, in one of our earlier episodes with Felix Kubin mm. about how all of the stuff about transmitting uh, radio and everything, all of the vocabulary actually comes from the seance. Mm. You know, the medium transmission, all this kind of stuff. This is all the, the vocabulary that was, that was in place uh, to do with contacting spirits. 
Marconi had conceived of telegraphy as a spectral science. He became convinced that sounds once generated never die. They simply become fainter and fainter until we no longer perceive them. Marconi's hope was to develop sufficiently sensitive equipment, extraordinarily powerful and selective filters, I suppose, to pick up and hear these past sounds. Ultimately, he hoped to be able to hear Christ delivering the Sermon on the Mount. So, I think that uh, that any kind of thing which is basically a nostalgia for a past, for a future that never arrived, is going to be measured by music. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> QED. <laughs> Uh, possibly. Um, the, the, I, I don't know how to respond to either of those two quotes you gave because, uh, you know, sorry, what? Well, yeah, you know me. I'm the, um, yeah. you know, I, I'm the science person here, I guess. Okay. But the, and, and, and Edison and Marconi both should have been too, but in their era, um, yeah. uh, you know, seances were popular, what they call that spiritualism, uh, was, yeah. was very fashionable at the time. Yeah. Well, also, uh, yeah, I, I was just going to throw into there as well, we just did a, uh, a um, an episode about uh, Cozy Funny Tutti <laughs> and uh, her examination of, uh, the, of Marjorie Kemp. And there it talks about a whole different definition of recording. Yes, which I didn't really think was a very convincing way of tying things together. Um, mm. You know, she she dictated to a scribe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so how so how specifically does what was what in those two quotes that you just gave out, one about radio, uh-huh. one about um, one about about, uh, about recording. recording. Yeah. How do these not apply to written text? Well, I think Cozy's point wasn't that it was written text. It was spoken that somebody else was transcribing. So that was actually kind of a a recording process. Hmm. Okay. Um, Bringing it back to the question of ghosts, however, Uh um, and uh, persistent sounds. I mean, we've got texts from... For example, mm. we've got Marjorie's text. I haven't mm-hmm. read enough to find the jokes in it yet, but uh, we can read Shakespeare and find the jokes and, yeah. uh, and and laugh out loud. And somebody who's been dead for a long time can do that to us. Uh, could be anywhere, anytime when we do that reading. Uh, yeah. Or maybe we listen to it on a recording, on a, you know, a, a, a recording or, or we watch it on the TV or something. Mm. That's a persistence after death uh, and yeah. it having an effect on a human person. Yeah. Certainly the, the, the point that, uh, that uh, Simon Reynolds makes uh, actually all the way through that book is the fact that these, uh, that these persistent echoes have got to a stage where, uh, because, you know, they, things, things decay as they're repeated. Yes. And uh, it's got to a stage where uh, they've managed to, we're recycling stuff so much that it's actually um, 
kind of stifling any kind of process uh, progress. Yeah, I think it, uh, one of the things that I particularly liked about the uh, Ghosts of My Life book uh, was in the first chapter how he talked about how it's essentially stalled at that point. And I think mm. that I'd say this is very nicely explained in that opening chapter. Yeah, and it's uh, it's very nicely explained using um, a children's TV series. <laughs> yes, yeah. Sapphire and Steel, which I had completely Sapphire forgotten. And Steel. That. Yeah, now that, I mean that's um, that's that's quite quite extraordinary. Uh, I, I watched. I'd never watched it when I was a kid. I think I was probably a bit too old for it. But I sat down and uh, and watched an episode. Watched the first episode. Yeah, the same one I saw. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, the 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 episode that um, that Fisher actually talks about uh, is um, going to be dropped on YouTube on the twenty ninth of December. Yeah. So there's a link on the Substack. If you go onto that after the twenty ninth of December, you can watch it. Which is the final uh, episode of the TV the final series. episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Saffron Seal was a um, was a sort of science fiction style. So I think it looks like a really cheap English knockoff of uh, of the Twilight Zone. Uh, it's got Maybe. that sort of that sort of feel about it. Uh, we've got here, you know, a lot of uh, familiar looking situation. Other than the episode we saw, uh, familiar looking mm-hmm. situation, and then and then weird things happen, and people from another dimension arrive, except they look exactly like us, and and, and mm. time and time goes weird. Well, uh, Fisher, in his last work, The Weird and the Eerie, pre- uh, gave us a very, very clear um, definition of of the difference between these two states, which is that um, the weird is when there's something there that shouldn't be there, and the eerie is when something that should be there isn't there. Hmm. So you know, if if you if you went every day to the park, say, and you sat down in your in the cafe in the park, and ordered coffee, and coffee was brought to you, and you sat there drinking co- your coffee, and you suddenly noticed that, that there were no birds, then that would be eerie. If you noticed that there were birds but they were all vultures, then that would be weird. Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah, and you know this is the this is the sort of thing that I find enormously annoying in in reading Mark Fisher. Uh, it seems to be sort of like taking an intellectual pleasure in explaining these things to us, um, and I, and at the end of these explanations, I'm going like I'm I don't feel like I've really gained much. <laughs> it, it, it it seems it, it seems like there's a, a there's a style that he's aiming for which isn't just a literary style it's a it's a sort of a megaphonic didactic style it's almost it's polemical and really presumptuous like there's now I, I, I we're there are there are more than one people here and we can we can have a conversation about what the difference between weird and eerie are and, but there's huh. this um you know I I absolutely despise uh, when it happens that people people accuse anybody else of mansplaining. But you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, okay. It, it seems like you're taking possession of the de- definition of these words, and the difference is actually kind of more fun. 
Oh, okay. To, to run anyway, to get back bit, to back, yeah, back to the importance steel. of the difference. Now, yes. didn't you? Uh, d- uh, did you? Did you not notice? Uh, I mean, you're, you're talking about. Yeah, it's easy to poke fun at the at the cheap sort of production values, and particularly the computer graphics, although they were probably cutting edge at the time. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but uh, I think actually the sets were were probably no sort of cheaper than. Um, than you would have got with a show like Cat Weasel. Yeah, it, incidentally, incidentally, was also about time travel. What? But I, I the difference is that they were shot on different stock. What I it didn't. Um, what I thought was was sort of um, a cheap knockoff part of it was the mm-hmm. um, was the the writing was so heavy on cliches from television, um, and it mm. was so very slow moving. Um, Everything seems slow moving these days. <laughs> maybe I don't know, but I'll tell you where they didn't uh, save any money at all was on the music. Yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah, I would I would really like to know who record who the musicians were who recorded all of that. I mean, you know, they've they've got the composer and everything, but uh, I I would very much like to have a list of uh, of all the people who played on that because it's it's wonderful. Yes, they. Uh, uh, Mark Fisher gave a uh, gave a shout out to the to the interesting music in that TV show. Well, it, it because particularly because it, it works like a chorus in a Greek tragedy. It's uh, it, it is sort of commenting on the action and uh, and moving stuff along. It's very very subtly done. Yeah, so and it's the sort of thing that would never happen today, you know. No, um, I mean the the whole thing where you need musicians uh, to yeah. be able to. I mean, it's a luxury. It's just treated as a luxury now for for high budget movies and for Family Guy. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You take real musicians. But uh, but a kids show. <laughs> well, I mean, that, 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 what were the what were the options back there? I mean, uh, ATV didn't have didn't have a radiophonic workshop. You know, yeah. it was it would have been a little bit later before they could have done it all just using, um, yeah. you know, commercial electronic equipment. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and actually, that that also brings us to uh, to to Japan uh, and and the the track that, that gives the gives the whole collection its name i mean we just need to take a minute here and acknowledge the fact that uh, that this band went on national television <laughs> at a time when there were only four tv channels and subjected the entire nation to a piece of very strange music are you sure it wasn't three at that time it may might even have been three yeah, just yeah. before channel four came along yeah just before yeah yeah yeah, I mean, uh, Ghosts is a very, very awesome song. It's uh, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's quite something. Um, yes, and very uh, and not typical of their music at all. Uh, no, nope. because it's got it's just the it's just the very very sparse electronic sounds, you know, the synth sounds, um, yeah. and uh, and the voice. That's it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and. You know, also we've we've in in a way, uh, what Mark Fisher's doing uh, with this book is kind of what we're doing with this show in a way, because 
he he men- he constantly mentions things that he saw on TV on Channel Four late at night. <laughs> That's what you're doing on this yeah, podcast. Exactly. Yes. No. I. 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 Uh, I let's. Let's get. Let's bring this back to the central thesis. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, which I we can talk about uh, what hauntology really is in just a moment. But I think the central thesis here uh, that he's trying to bring out is that uh, Thatcherism brought us capitalism. Uh, mm. Talking about U- UK history here, um, and uh, th- with that. We cancelled the uh, the post-war consensus, and we cancelled the, uh, the sort of uh, what do they call it, um, populist modernism that was um, that was a that was actually it was a class consensus um, kind of mm. vision of the future that we had experienced in the 70s, or at least in the 60s and 70s, and maybe in a little bit hanging over in the 80s. And then as we moved beyond Thatcherism and we moved on with John Major and, and New Labour, oh. this consolidated into, consolidated, yeah. into um, oh, politically consolidated into a, a neoliberal capitalism. Uh, and, and, and indeed culture at that point s- stopped, stopped evolving. Yeah, because because we had no more optimism in the collective future. Yeah, this is, I think, the idea that he's uh, uh, that he keeps keeps banging on at in this book, um, and presents yeah. quite quite nicely in the in the opening chapter, and and it's got a whole bunch of examples of it. But within this, in the in the first half of the book, uh, we've got these examples of Mark Fisher's writings from. A period where he described, where he says in the introduction that he was very depressed, mm. of him uh, sort of examining the examining feelings about the situation he's in relative to the ghosts of what he grew up ah, with, okay. or what he thought was there when he grew up with, uh, uh. through these various musical and sometimes uh-huh. film um, inputs, let's call it. Right. Uh, so, for example, there's Ghost Box label, there's um, Burial. What else have we got there? Uh, the Caretaker, mm-hmm. things like that. I see. That kind of answers a question that I was going to pose to you, actually, because the... Um the 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 thing is that it says uh, the subtitle is, is writings on depression, hauntology, and lost futures, and I found uh, when I was looking around on the internet, I found a uh, an article, uh, a sort of review of Mark Fisher in the in the New Yorker by a guy called Hua Su. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a, a, a sentence in here which says, but the most penetrating articles in the book consider Fisher's own struggles with depression. And I thought, uh, where are they? Well, they're, peri- <laughs> they're only really peripherally mentioned. I mean, he does. Yeah, exactly. He does talk about, at one point, it's one of these things where I get really um, mm. a, little, a little bored with... Uh, the importance of the distinction between mourning, melancholy, and melancholia and depression, uh, and, and 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 we're going to define the differences here. Um, 
as though he had the authority to do that. That yeah. You, right. Anyway, I've I've gone through that before. There are a lot, there's a lot of that here. All right. No, I'll I'll wrap I'll wrap up my my criticism there very briefly. Yeah. It's the Please. the the arrogance of that you get with a lot of writers that the way that they're seeing the world, the way mm. that they're understanding it, they're writing about it as though that's the truth, that's the consensus, that's what everybody else thinks. It seems solipsistic to me. It's um, it's not it's not out there taking in what other people think. It's it's so I mean, Zizek's like this. You know, I think it's a sort of a form of uh, a form of being a magician. If if you understand the idea of a guru slash magician, okay. Um, uh, sense even Malcolm Gladwell's one. You know, right. uh, writing in this arrogant. Uh, style of we all think this there's a consensus on this that or the next thing a cultural consensus that th that there is such and such and i go no it is accepted even assumed at the level <laughs> of cultural unconscious and i go no no it's not <laughs> where did you get that from usually you need to get out more you really do <laughs> Because that's not the way I think. And I know other people, too, who don't think that way. <laughs> you know, I mean, how, do, how does anybody manage to get sentences onto the page like that and take themselves and, and not realize that they're being a bit pompous? Hmm. Yeah. Don't they have editors? Not if you're writing a blog. No, that's a good point, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, no, it's interesting, though, the way he talks about uh, the, the way that the depression works, I think, here, in the, in the, in the, in the sections where he's talking about this, uh, this awful music that he likes or claims to like or mm. seems to think is important. Um, I, was, I was going through this, and I was checking these, these recordings out to make sure that I was listening to the same things, the exact same yeah. things that he was, uh, he was yes. talking about, um, which is uh, super convenient that we've got the streaming apps, isn't it, mm. uh, these days. But hang on, like, and this big question started to arise in my mind, uh, and it just got more and more urgent the, the deeper he got into uh, this stuff is especially when you're dealing with the ghost box um, ghost box things I mean like uh, advisory circle huh. right did you check any of that out I can't remember yeah. okay <laughs> and you know I mean this is you know like the like the James Kirby stuff is like the yeah. a really lazy way of, of sort of like throwing throwing a very ultra postmodern way of throwing stuff together, uh -huh. uh, but also really kind of lazily put together and, and musically very uninteresting. It just doesn't, for me, the, mm. the constructions themselves have, have, have very little to get your teeth into. And actually all they seem to have there is emotional hooks. And these are what you might call echoes of, um, Echoes of things that you fr from from our youth or our, uh -huh. from our childhood, um, and it seems to me to be an obviously rather perverse thing to spend your time doing. Uh, yeah. uh, to be listening to that music, 
putting maybe making the music in the first place is a bit weird but you know i mean if you can get attention that way and attention is what you want then great fine go ahead and do it but what the question he doesn't ask himself at any Mm. point here is what kind of psychopathology causes somebody to be seeking these kinds of stimuli because like i said they're not particularly musically interesting they're not they're not dealing in a um in a creative process very much it's it's like what we're deliberately trying to do is find it's like trolling youtube for things where you go oh wow i remember that mm. and and you feel and, and you feel an emotion right you feel a a brief maybe slightly longer i don't know uh, mm-hmm. sensation now if those symbols are used are manipulated musically and they're not and they're not especially verbal you know they're more abstract mm. if those symbols are put together in a let's call it musical composition together with some other stuff and they're washed around a bit you give them the, all the the treatments you know the graininess yeah. the distortions gigantic slatherings crackle. of echo crackle gigantic slatherings of echo and reverb yeah. Uh, to make it seem all a little bit spooky, uh, or maybe uh, what was the word? We were eerie. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what we were looking for there. Uh, and so that then, if you let that stuff come in to your ears, now it seems to me that you're obviously looking for you're looking for some sort of a stimulus, or he is. It's, yeah. That's the impression I got as this progressed. Was why aren't you asking yourself the question why you're listening to this? That's the depression right there. I think oh, that he was. Okay. I think that the uh, the psychopathology that's that's at that root here is uh, is some kind of a it's it's the depression blended together with the his own particular life story. Of course, everybody's depression is blended with their life story. It's these things are yeah. integrated. They're t- they're the same thing almost. But yeah. uh, imagine somebody who's got i think this actually comes up in the book the sense of home that only a child can fully experience uh-huh. okay. which is the security of home yeah. right now the the sense of home that an adult has is one of less security you know and responsibility you've got responsibility you've got repairs yeah. to do you may have to provision it you might actually have people yeah. to look after as well um it's you're providing that, but as a child, children are children mm. are egomaniacal psychopaths. Certainly, young children are um, mm-hmm. undeniable. But then, as they as they grow up, they're sort of like transitioning to being independent pe- human beings. And mm. during that period, he had. So, if you imagine somebody who's you know an adult, maybe he was in his thirties or uh, for, uh, around 30, 35, 40 ish yeah. when he was writing these stuff. In a depressed condition, having really spent his 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 adult life, you know, trying to be a writer and uh, and an academic, and you know, trying to find a, but obviously, as according mm. to what he's written elsewhere, I was really struggling with holding that stuff together. Yeah, and also having a a uh, a a true, although he tries to deny the term here. Um, and I've lost the word as well. Uh, what, what's the word? Oh, anyway, he's got a romantic attachment to uh-huh. um, to various 
things that seemed progressive to him at the time. Okay. That came now, and he's he catches that in a uh, in, in a um, in, in political terms, but it can also be uh-huh. looked at uh, in terms of there was a post-war consensus and reconstruction going on in the UK, and then yeah. that ended when Thatcher took off, and uh-huh. the and, and and he found himself depressed in that post-Thatcher period, uh-huh. thinking back to and being manipulated by these hauntological musical symbols hmm. well yeah uh, that's uh, one thing's true is that you you do project your own uh your own story onto onto music like that mm. i mean you know he he goes on uh for ages about how you know uh burial is mm. well i mean the clue is kind of in the name yeah. is is all grim and gritty and edgy and dark and all mm. the rest of it and um i listened to most of that burial album i thought it was quite jolly actually yeah i i thought it was nice enough to start with i got bored of bored of i got bored of it after a bit but i was actually sort of i didn't didn't think it was it was down or or dark or depressing or anything <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, it is weird. Um, well, uh, but uh, but it, it it is interesting. I mean, um, I've been sitting there in rehearsals all week, yeah. uh, you know, thinking about about hauntology and thinking about how how it it's, it re- applies to music and and we're doing a Mahler symphony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you want hauntology, roll right up, kids, because it's full of it. <laughs> so explain that. Oh God. Well, I would. Uh, okay, this week we're playing Marler One. Mm-hmm. So there is literally a nursery rhyme, a kids' nursery rhyme, made into the most the most grotesque and scary thing you could possibly imagine. Okay. But is this is the what what hauntology refers to is the absence. <laughs> It's, yeah, well, uh, it's well, you know, if uh, if if you've seen um, a, a kid's nursery rhyme, which would be something that you know would be normally quite cheerful and uh, and associated with childhood, something by no means, might, yeah, God, plenty of them a, are kind of scary. No, oh, that's it's Frere Jacques. Okay, yeah, and it's suddenly put into a minor key, and uh, and harmonized like you know christ knows what and uh made very very scary indeed right but the so, if i understood right there's a distinction between uh ontology and um and nostalgia which is the word i couldn't find earlier um yeah. so ontology um it's it's the the absence of something makes something else real or, mm-hmm. or points to its existence. Um, a nice example here, was this in the book? I don't remember. Was that sort of capitalism only becomes visible through, uh, uh-huh. you know, once, once Marx wrote about, about an alternative. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it's, it, it, capitalism really only defines itself in contrast to uh, to communism or socialism and yeah. uh and and it's one of the weird things about the uh, the post soviet era is that uh, it's still doing it even though yeah. that communism doesn't exist 
and maybe never even did exist because yeah. the creation uh, because because the warnings that Marx gave mm. you know in 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 the 19th century they already changed history they changed or yeah. changed history what's a nonsense thing to say but they changed they made changes in that the capitalists saw that they would have to be more careful yeah uh, or they're going to lose all the marbles yeah you know, so it's yeah. the it's the absence of the um, of the of, of something. You know, it's the suggestion that there's you've got these things that suggest something else that we, we that we can't identify. That's what's the uh, in the the absence of the birds in your example earlier. Oh, okay, yeah. When you're having the as opposed to them yeah. being vultures. Yeah yeah. 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 So my case for for hauntological Mahler, uh, okay. Well, certainly he was. I mean, he did this a lot. He'd take sort of quite innocent sounding tunes, and you know, the opening of the scherzo of of the Fifth Symphony, for instance, is it was a popular tune. That but was, isn't that was, turning the turning the the birds that should be singing at the cafe where you're drinking your coffee into vultures, as opposed to making yeah, them disappear? Because you know, by the end of it, it's like going through the fucking ghost train on roller skates you know okay <laughs> by the time you get to the end of that movement <laughs> or um you know one of my one of my favorite examples is the um the, the beginning of marla 10 which is uh you know just a long viola solo well what's missing there is is uh I suppose a sense of tonality for a bit because you're not quite sure where you are harmonically and you can feel the ground kind of uh, shifting under your feet. And uh, if, if you want something that's like following a ghost through the through the set of Tarkovsky's uh, Stalker, mm. then <laughs> that's probably it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So did you? So yeah, maybe uh, this isn't such a new idea. <laughs> which one? Uh, hauntology. No, I wouldn't think so. No, well, that's it's interesting because nobody who who writes about this writes about it as as being anything other than a product of the modern age. Yes. Yeah. But I think that maybe you know the Armala uh, of the who who you know pre First World War. There must have been a feeling uh, the the Austria-Hungarian Empire probably wasn't going to go on forever. Although, you know, there were enough signs that it could. I think the people must have uh, must have watched the skies there. Watch what skies? Well, you know, I think people must have must have uh, must have had this must have had this feeling must have seen something changing. Uh, must have asked themselves what was coming next.
So what about this notion that um, what the younger generation is doing with music is an, is an indication of cultural progress? Is that really the argument being made in the first chapter there? So uh, we've got, yeah. we've, we had, we had certainly, I mean, the, the point being made that, so like somewhere, you know, about in the last 20 years, hmm. the advances in, in popular music seem to be very much slowed down. Um, hmm. And what and the, the popular music that we have right now, it seems not really that much updated from what, no. what you could find in the mid-90s. No, it doesn't. I think, actually, any kind of argument in that direction is defeated by by choosing Japan's ghosts, which, <laughs> I mean, I, sorry, I keep coming back to this, but um, but to actually get something like that into the charts, something quite as musique concrète as that, um... You know, I don't see anybody doing anything like that these days. Right. Now, what I'm, uh, what I was asking, yes, no, uh, the, the, sorry, the, um, the evidence I think is there. So I, I, I agree with the, um, you know, the, uh, I agree with the argument that we've got, um, you know, the progression in, huh. in, in the, in the art, in the popular music. Uh, seems to have completely disappeared. Well, completely. I, I exaggerate mm. too much there. But the, the the question of what that represents, what does mm. this what does this uh, what what does this represent? Is this a political thing? Is this the the triumph of uh, capitalist realism of, in of, yeah. uh, in the collective uh, subjectivity? The, I mean, Mark Fisher is making one particular case here, uh, mm. and that that the only that this is. This is somehow the result of the uh, the move away from a social democratic order to a neoliberal and post Fordian uh-huh. uh, neoliberal order and a post Fordian economy. Uh, uh-huh. Again, here he talks about things that I don't think he understands very well. But it seems to me that there there are uh, plenty of other ex- plenty of other explanations you could come up with for why mm. things yeah. stalled. Absolutely. I mean, um, well, one of them stalled. Uh, I mean, we're talking about uh, the Internet has basically um, destroyed the concept of niche. Because uh, it's now, you know, there's there's no such thing as, as, as something which is only a niche interest. Everything's important. So you know, the, I mean, used to be a, a great insult back in the in the day. You know, to say, "Oh, I think you'll find his his work is no longer relevant." No, it, because if it's on the internet and somebody's listening to it, then yeah, I'm sorry, it is relevant. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know. So, uh, how does this apply to music? Well, uh, you know, uh, really weird sort of sort of things which wouldn't even have got any airtime. Like vaporwave, yeah. There's even a, a there's even a subform of vaporwave that I just found out about today called hushwave. Yeah. Don't ask me what it is. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I mean this is one of the points that he's 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 making there is that the um, is that the 
progression is there, but it, you need to be a real specialist to be able to understand the differences. Well, no, it's just that it, it's uh, it's not as, as centralised. Back in the day, there was only one or two separate stages for, yes. be it popular music, yes, or or, or whatever. Yeah. And now there are there are more than you can count. Yes. So the whole business of, of working out what's going on or, or what's relevant or you know, even the term of what's relevant has been has been done away with. Yes. Everything's relevant. Or or yes. Yeah. No, I see what you're saying. Uh, I mean there's a, there's other arguments like I've made before that I think that the um uh the the business people took over. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and back in in the seventies, uh, what was going to be popular was was something that you could still sort of take a take a gamble on. Yeah, um, and eventually, the you know the artists and repertoire people, the marketers, basically, they developed much better analytic techniques. And to the and yeah. at this point, they've got they've got all the data they could possibly need on mm. on what will sell. Yeah, yeah, and they they start so, actually. So they could just channel the investments that way. They start actually really, uh, really sort of uh, uh, targeting very, very particular audiences. Yeah, yeah. Another way of looking at it is that there was a, um, in a sense, a popular music only for, in that sense, mm -hmm. popular music of recorded music mm -hmm. only for a few decades. Because we had mm -hmm. uh, the, I mean, we had to have the arrival of the technology and then the, its replacement as a, as a system of, uh, of channel management, right? So we had the, yeah. you know, the scarcity of the number of channels. So we, there's only so many, there's only so many radio channels. There's only so much, uh, so many record shops and so much vinyl mm -hmm. going around and you had to buy it or listen to it on the radio or something mm. or on the, watch it on the TV. Those were the options. Yeah. So that the ability to manage those channels and get, um, you know, either be in them or out that that was a for a limited period of time. Yeah. And that's kind of a technological thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's also, I mean, this, uh, uh, I suppose you and I are going to have to discuss joy division. <laughs> Yeah, sure. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, of course, he, of course he wrote a chapter about Joy Division. Uh, but the, the only, I actually did sat, uh, sit down and watch that entire movie. Now, the, the documentary he mentioned. The documentary, yeah. Which is fairly recent, uh, right? Well, uh, the thing is, it's 2007, so okay. that's the same year as Control came out. Uh -huh. Yeah, he didn't care for Control. Well, he didn't care for 24 party people either, but I think if if you're honest, you have to watch all three of them because uh -huh. whereas the other two don't deal with the facts all the time, they do deal with um, with the myth and what really has been left of Joy Division is the branding. Mm. And uh, there's the, the documentary is interesting right at the end when they talk about, you know, the fact that they, uh, uh, the, the, how the, the level of branding went has, has just gone out of control. I don't think any of the, certainly the members of the band, I don't think they've seen anything from all of those T-shirts that got sold. Right. <laughs> and, um, 
And if I, you know, Joy Division, God. <sighs> uh, it's not, it's, it's weird. It, they're not a band I really like terribly much. I like one or two of the songs. I don't like the guy's voice at all. He's not very good at staying in tune. Um, I mean, they had the most fantastic production. Both both of those records, the uh, I, I cannot listen to the second side of Closer because it's just it's it just seems to get slower and slower and more and more grinding. Uh, the same time on the on side one of Closer, there's some really great things, but um, it seemed to me that this was actually probably the most hauntological music that you could find because. Um, they only made two albums, and uh, then yeah, everybody's they they are, they're kind of like the symbol for something, some kind of great future that uh, that of course then never came. Yeah, yeah, and everybody sort of fantasized about. Even though I think you know, if they had been around to to make a, a third album, it might not have been as good as um, as. Power, Corruption and Lies, which I do quite enjoy. Well, there's one of those things that, you know, the um, if, you, if you carry on, then you could end up being as embarrassing as the Rolling Stones. <laughs> um. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's actually not a, not a bad film. Um, but uh, but like I said, I think, oh God, twenty four hour party people, it would probably annoy you. I found it quite funny, and um, control. I had a real problem with control because <laughs> coming coming from Macclesfield as I do, uh, shooting a film in black and white makes Macclesfield look a whole lot more dignified than it was in the seventies. <laughs> It looks all sort of sort of gritty and gothic and interesting, and you know, it's missed out the sort of you know the different shades of rust. <laughs> this church at the end of uh, end of our road, which uh, which looked like it had, it was it was all black from soot and smoke, and I always used to think that it was like you know congealed sin when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Oh. No, I really don't have anything to say about um, <laughs> Joy Division. Uh, the it's well, it's not like um, except to say it's closest thing in the um, in the in the early part of the book. It's the closest thing to what sounds like real music. Uh, I mean, this this thing with the caretaker um, and James oh, Kirby. Yeah. I've, yeah. Y- y- you you have any history there? Is that new to you or what? Uh, well, I did. I when I was for some reason I was trying to find out what vapor wave was, and it turns up there. Yeah. Uh, but no, I can't. Uh, I can't really uh, find anything there to listen to. <laughs> I actually found for the uh, did I had to do a bit of searching for it. Found for the subsite. Maybe find a link for it to a review for the first time. I encountered when i was a um doing music reviews for mm-hmm. 
for brainwash.com. Um, mm-hmm. A pair of VVVM um, CDs came up. And, you know, I sort of researched the topic there a bit and came across, came to the firm conclusion that what we're dealing with here is a, is a poser of very unmusical talents um, <laughs> who's quite good at uh, uh, sort of hooking on to the, the, the sort of intellectual symbols that get used in other areas of the culture. So uh, one example of a, a, of a, a CD released was called, was um, I think all nine or 10 of the Shostakovich symphonies time stretch so that they would fit the, you know, f- uh, have the same duration uh, and then mixed together. And this was then a, a demonstration of uh, quote unquote experimental music um, because this was a time. And honestly, people are still doing it. It's such a drag. Um, people are talking, uh, people describe their music as experimental as a way to make it sound more interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, yeah. it's a word that you can use to try and uh, sort of explain away why it sounds weird. And, but, uh, but you're, you're, you're doing something intellectual here as well. And here it is. Here's an experiment. Let's do, let's play all of this all at once um, as an experiment. I mean, that, how lazy do you get? And yeah. some people took it seriously. And I'm like, wow, you're taking this seriously? <laughs> and I mean, it was the, the other thing that I listened to as well was also, I, it just, musically, it just doesn't do anything. And then the caretaker stuff got popular. And I went, what, what, what is this? What's going wrong here? Um, there's there's a kind of prankster quality to it, but there's something also almost a little bit angry about it because I get the impression of somebody that feels like they ought to be taken seriously, but the music just seems very, very lazy to me. Hmm. I saw it yeah. was very disappointing when he started um, talking seriously about the... What about The Shining? Do you... What do you think of the movie? I've never seen it. Really? No. Oh, you should. It's, it's it's a good laugh. Yeah. Um, I I mean, back when it was new, yes, it was kind of a surprise. Um, uh-huh. You know, it had it had some good horror movie qualities about it. Yeah. But these days, to be to to even talk about it real seriously is a bit surprising to me. It didn't date well. Didn't age mm. well. You know. Okay. Have you ever read any Sebald? I don't think so, no. No. Well, actually... This uh, was the stuff about um, going for walks in, in England. Yeah. yeah. I, I found that found that very interesting because, of course, uh, Will Self is all on, is always on about uh, psychogeography. Mm. Um, yes. And, of course, as we've talked about on this podcast a few times, uh, there's, you know, the same discoveries have a habit of being made by different people independently of each other. And uh, the the Zebalt book is very good, The Rings of Saturn. It's uh, it's it's really really good. And I did um, I really liked how the chapter on that kind of then uh, went into the into the chapter on uh, the film content mm-hmm. by Petit, uh, which um, which was one that I didn't know. But I sat down and watched a bit of it. Yeah. 
and uh, and yeah, it's uh, it, I I think it's everything that uh, that Fisher says it is in the book. I think we could almost do an episode on that alone, actually. Yeah, I didn't take a look at that at all. That's one of the things I skipped oh. over. I'm afraid. Yeah. I mean, in terms of going to try and look at what it was that he was talking yeah. about. So, where are we with this book? Um, do well. I mean, there's uh, yeah, there's the bits of, bits of it really do flash with brilliance. I, I I'm prepared to break a lance for it. Uh, I, I I think it's I think it's very worthwhile, and it's it's really. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed the kind of writing. I enjoyed just the just the um, just the the courage to actually engage ideas on this level. Mm-hmm. And I don't see a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, it, it's maybe on Substack. Maybe you know, maybe not published. Put it that way. Right. Um, I I don't know where the sort of stuff is would be going on these days. Um, there, yeah, I guess I do. I do read some stuff along these lines, yeah. but not not so much that's that's um, so concerning itself with aesthetic matters and, and and trying to draw such deep political and um, economic connections. Well, yeah, uh, but I like I say, I admire I admire the bravery for doing that because you know uh, they're there. Yes, I mean, my my take on the style here is that it it seemed like uh, a sort of like a British attempt at continental philosophy. It's it's got the unnecessarily complicated language or sentences. Do you think? Um, I, I I found it I found the language actually quite clear compared to a lot of other stuff like this that I've tried to read. So what's the I other stuff it- like this? Oh God! What's the other stuff like this? Well, there's actually. I'll tell you what. The introduction to this book is written by a man called uh, McCulloch, isn't it? Uh, yeah, Matt. Uh, no, Matt. Uh, Matt Colhoun. Matt, introduction to what book? To to this book, to the Mark Fisher book. My edition of it. Okay. Mark Colhoun writes the. Um, writes the introduction and Simon Reynolds writes an afterword. Okay. In 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 this edition. I don't think I got that. No, you maybe didn't. This is the uh this is the zero books, uh, zero classics edition. And uh it's uh, of course this is the the company that uh, that Fisher uh helped to set up. They've uh, yeah they've they've got some I I even marked down one or two things in other books in the back that I would I would uh, sort of chase up oh my god I just opened this there's a there's a, they've got a book called Babbling Corpse Vaporwave and the Commodif- Commodification of Ghosts <laughs> uh, yeah okay but you're asking about language the um, the the introduction. Uh, to this book is is written in a language that I found quite tricky to get through and then suddenly you go from that straight into the beginning of the of the Fisher book and it's it's like having wheels suddenly yeah yeah the first chapter yeah. is good I agree and and some of the stuff in here is is, is good 
it, I, I think I, I thought it was variable. What I have to admit that maybe I'm. I, I, how far did you get with a capitalist realism? Uh, not so far. Yeah, it. Uh, it took me. Uh, actually, I only just got this this book finished in time. Yeah, I sort of dipped in and out of capitalist realism. Yeah, so I, I, I plowed through that whole of that. It's not very long. It's um, the no, it's not. I got the uh, the audiobook version uh, as read by the the ultra cancelled and can't mention his name anymore. Um, mm. So the uh, which is actually as a theatrical performance is is in parts quite entertaining, but that I think that that I think is very much an exercise in trying to write like you know Zizek or something, um, and. It, it's a it's an it's a it's an almost an intellectual snobbish thing for me mm. in fact it is i'm not going to say almost a sort of a force of a, a barrage of words uh mm. that if you can manage to understand the sentences then mm. uh you know, arguing with them as they proceed uh is 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 very difficult and then Weirdly, uh, the sort of like that 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 goes together with what seems in Ghost of My Life uh, like an uh-huh. like an inverted snobbery with respect to music. Seems like he's uh, very specifically sort of staying away from. Well, he's valorizing uh, a, a rather simplistic popular music. Ah, uh-huh. so yeah. it, it, there's another one final. Uh, thing here do you i i i really did not in the end of the whole this whole exercise get the sense of a of a of a socialist at the heart of this i got the sense of a romantic ah but you can't take the romantic out of the socialist tom (laughs) all right go ahead no, no, I did. Uh, no, I, I, I think his, I think his politics were, were very, very seriously meant. Yeah. Uh, yes, the the heart of it, though, the, I mean, when, if you think about our, our college years, our uni, times that we spent at uni, right? It okay. was completely unacceptable to oh. be anything than a socialist or a communist. Right. That was if you're oh, going to be an intellectual. Maybe where you went to college. Uh, I mean, there's the young conservatives. Fine. Yeah. But there's but they 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 were pretty pretty clearly separated off. Everybody else was arguing. Mm. I mean, it was, and it's still true today in in academia. There's it, it's, but they're but they're but they're obviously not. I mean, they're getting trained for for jobs in in management and in see, the yeah, bureaucracies, okay. and yeah. you know, it's you know, it it was oh. always just uh, an aesthetic poser thing to be into, yeah. uh, you know, well, you know, to be into uh, revolutionary or or ra- radical left politics. Okay, but um, but we just mentioned there that he started this uh, this this line of books which uh, this publishing house and then eventually fell out with uh, with with the consortium that uh, all the the group of people who he'd, who'd started the the uh, that house with and uh, formed a new one based on kind of the same ideas called because the the uh, 
the original publishers were called Zero. Yeah. And so the uh, the the next house was called Repeater. Okay. And yeah, there. Uh, if if you, I'm just looking through all of this, uh, all of these books here. Um, it's all stuff that you, you know, wouldn't actually find anywhere else. A lot of these authors are not names to me. Um, yeah. No, I, 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 I'm sorry. I think his, uh, yeah, I think his his politics were were okay. I'm I'm inclined to think that that that, that this conflict between being a a romantic at heart, wanting, uh-huh. uh, yearning for a past that never actually existed, and um, it was in conflict with what he intellectually thought he uh-huh. believed in. That could have been so. Part yearning of the for depression. a past that never actually existed is not the same as yearning for a future that never arrived. Um, or is it? No, actually, uh, both. Yeah, both. I think yeah, I yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, they they uh, they complement each other, they don't they? Um, yes, yes, it's true. They do. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, because uh, part of the because um, the, 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 the hauntology has become kind of monetized is uh, by uh, sort of this this uh, this whole wave of kind of fake vintage stuff. Mm. Yeah. That uh, you know, um, that well, we've we've talked about before about Douglas Cowpland's concept of vaccinated time travel. Yeah, you know, of going okay. back to uh, to an imagined past, but with all of the benefits that of the of the current present. Yeah. You know, there's uh, or being being nostalgic for a time which actually um, existed uh, some you know twenty years before you were born, mm-hmm. and which uh, your idea of which bears absolutely no resemblance to how it actually was. Right. But yeah. the, is it, but if you think about how these these two concepts fit together, when he's thinking back to um, you know the, the value of public service broadcasting, the Penguin books, oh. the uh, mm. the radiophonic workshop, these symbols of a what what were then um, in his youth, mm-hmm. they were they had a potential for him which he had not yet fully explored and only begun to mm-hmm. probably uh, explore. And they were only so much. They were their thing, whatever, but they mm-hmm. promised a future. Now, okay, what yeah. he's missing now is a, is, is a, is something that came from that. What he's okay, missing yeah. now. You know, so it's, it's a sort of like a nostalgia for that sense of, uh, of there being a future. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, yes, that's true. Except, so I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to apply this to a concrete thing. So you know, actually, the two things that he that he mentions in the in the initial chapter, sapphire and steel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, television of that quality, of that you know. Um, intellectual level uh, was going to become a thing of the past yeah. fairly quickly. Yeah. And um, 
okay, there was, there was, uh, you and I both know there was a whole lot of crap in the charts in 1981. Yeah. It's but, actually a useful exercise to go and go and look at chart listings from yes, back so in the day and realize that, and, yeah. And There's, watch the rest of that episode of Top of the Pops, oh, which yeah. Japan was on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would probably cure you of nostalgia pretty quickly. (laughs) Yes, there's this this thing that social democracy Mm. was another way of organizing capitalism. Mm -hmm. Right. It was it's 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 not it's not like that. That's. Uh, that wasn't a capitalist world. I mean, the the uh, that's what Britain was always the best at was capitalism, mm. and they just they and the United States uh, when it got on board, they had to respond to a depression, and they they did. So there was some adjustment there, um, but it was it was still just a different way of of organizing capitalism. If you've got some state funded. Uh, industries, that means that you're subsidizing the other industries. You know, Mm. I mean, what's public service broadcasting for? It's so that you've got people that are in a position to, to go and, to go and work. Mm. What's, what's public education for? It's to give, it's to give, you know, we can, we can talk about all the, all, all the idealistic stuff that's, that's there. What are roads for? It's to enable transportation. Uh, mm. It's a subsidy on getting stuff from A to B. Uh, these are these are all infrastructure, of which education is an example. Mm. Part of how you make your country's productivity more competitive on the international market. Huh. So, it's, uh, social democracy is still a, a a way of organizing capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we're looking at there is, yeah, this, uh, I mean, honestly, um, I guess a lot of my criticism here is, is still uh, uh, related to um, capitalist realism, uh, which actually uh-huh. was written before all of this, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, it's getting tremendously high praise. I still don't really understand why. Um, doesn't add up at all. Well... I suppose that's about it then. <laughs> I guess it is. I, I'm glad that I'm not going to have to deal, deal with the words libidal, libidinal and oniric quite so often in the next mm. few weeks. Or actually, what was it? Uh, carnally cronk. What you saying there? Yeah, I, I don't know. There was something where he was talked about uh, the carnality of cronk. Which was <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I've no idea. No, I haven't. Oh, oh, yes, here we are. I found it. I found the exact sentence. Here we are. Timberland's beat surrealism became water treading repetition years ago, displaced by the ultra re- ultra realist thuggish plod of corporate hip hop and the ugly carnality of crunk. And two steps feminine pressure has long since been crushed by the testosterone saturated bluntness of grime and dubstep. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'm getting old. <laughs> yes, that could be part of it. But I, I, you know, just you know, he, he talks in the in the in the opening chapter about the. Uh, getting an education from reading the NME. Do you remember that bit? 
<laughs> well, <laughs> so Ian Penman, he was so inspired by, right? Mm, yeah. The same time, I mean, um, you know, that's uh, that. Uh, you're. You may be judging that a bit too harshly because remember back then in the day, um, kids who didn't read anything read The Enemy once a week. Now some of them did, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it is it is pretty, you know, to, it, uh, The Enemy just went online to stop yeah. uh, actually disappearing altogether. Hmm. But back in the day, that used to that used to arrive, and it used to get read cover to cover by a lot of people at my school. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't buy it because it didn't have anything about jazz in it. I I was more melody maker. Yeah. But um, but you know, I it would get passed around, and uh, and I, I certainly read things in it. And it, uh, I think I've got an old copy of the NME here, actually. Yeah, uh, it was for for a lot of people. It was uh, that that was what that was their their dose of literature. What I'm complaining about is this: uh-huh. um, there's no need for the show offiness uh, of trying to sound like you're a, uh, a continental theorist. You you keep banging on with this stuff about continental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like which, yeah. Well, I don't know. It sounds a bit sort of uh, British. <laughs> no, I, th- I think they they understand. They uh, it, it's it's an accepted term over here over here in the US. There's a, you know mm-hmm. the it's a, a a branch of predominantly 20th century philosophy, um, uh-huh. and I think it was that ended up being countered in the US by. A, a more analytic approach and a pragmatic approach. So it's it's basically a, a, a poetic approach to uh, to philosophy, mm-hmm. and one that involves uh, you know the a great exponent there of obviously Derrida, and I think you know a good example. Have you ever tried to read any of the big thick books by Zizek? It's just like I, I can't make any sense of these sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not worth the trouble, but they they obviously take each other very seriously, and the difficulty of the language is part of the game uh, hmm. among these academics. But the, it is predominantly a, a continental school. I, I I understood that as being the, the 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 technical term for it, you know, the jargon for it. But uh, I'm not trying to sound like a you know some. You know, English uh, person who, you know, prefers Holst or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, we're we're getting a bit slowing down here a bit. Maybe yeah, there's some, maybe there's a quick quote that we can. Uh, I just found this one uh, that we can agree on something to agree okay, on. Okay, come on. The problem with current pop is not the predominance of MOR, but it's the fact that MOR has been corrupted by the wheedling wine of indie authenticity. Yeah, what? You don't get I that? Had, yeah. I, no, I had a real problem with that. Oh, interesting. The wheedling wine of indie authenticity. What's oh, I completely, completely agree. Right. These days, the, um, uh, the pop, when you've, when you've got the, uh, 
uh, the vocals come in. And you know, okay, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's all over the fucking place. Um, they don't stop. It doesn't go out of fashion. It just goes on and on. And it's supposed to sound like authenticity, but it isn't. It's, oh, right. Okay, I understand. Uh, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's something that came uh, uh, that 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 was dominant for a long time also in what they called singer-songwriter styles. But then that became mm. dominant in, in, in indie. Well, sorry. Yeah, here the word indie, I think, is a little confusing. But mm. yeah. yeah. So you ah, oh, we can't agree on that. That's, that's, uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. No, well, well, no, now that, uh, now that I, now that you've actually, uh, defined it a bit better. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Oh, these nasal whiny crooner teenagers and 20 somethingers. <laughs> oh, get out of my face. I've, I'm done with it. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, kids, uh, <laughs> Yeah, our suggestions to you is don't listen to Joy Division. Listen to The Fall. And <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, really, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, don't listen to Vaporwave. Listen to the opening of Marla Ten. Yeah, I'll go with that too. Yeah, there's yeah, there's some the whole bitching chord changes in that one. <laughs> yes, or Sun Ra. Oh God, he was great. Yeah. I mean, uh, I I saw the saw the orchestra Not he. about a week ago. You saw ago. the orchestra, yeah. I saw the orchestra, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they they really rocked, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the idea that there can still be joy in music is not gone. Um, no. And the wheedling wine of indie authenticity uh, is certainly trying to pretend that it, it it's gone, but but. And 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 so is an all, a, a lot of the stuff that Mark Fisher was listening to in the in, in the first decade of the yes. century. But then there is also, you know, there's also the fall, and there's also yes. Sun Ra. Yeah, or the orchestra, as we just call it now, Sun Ra's orchestra. Yeah. All right. Okay. Good night. Right. All the best. Thank you.